listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. turn again to the same passage to look at the condemnation of false teachers. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. So uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're able, would you stand with me uh, to honor the reading of God's word? Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell... And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, I want to tell you about a young man who believed that God had guaranteed healing for any individual who would have it. If you're sick, he believed that God would certainly heal you if you would have it. He would say things like, you just have to have faith and God will do whatever you ask of him. You just have to have faith and God will do anything that you ask. Even when the young man's own uncle came down with a terminal illness, he still thought the same thing. He assumed because of his theology that his uncle, who hadn't yet been healed, must have done one or more of the big four, which he called it, which negated the healing that he should have been guaranteed. That's that's why he thought he wasn't being healed. What's the big four that this young man thought? his uncle had committed. One of them must have been making a negative confession, saying negative things about your physical condition. That that would nullify, that would cancel out any healing that God would have for you. Or second, being around negative people, this young man thought. If you were around other negative people, that too could cancel out God's inevitable, certain healing for you. Or three, that his uncle just didn't have enough faith. Not he didn't believe enough or he didn't give enough money to prove that he trusted God to heal him or forth. Perhaps his uncle touched the Lord's anointed, that he spoke against a man of God who was anointed. This young man knew that his uncle had committed either one of these big four or all of the big four. And that's why his uncle ultimately passed away of this terminal illness. Surely he was going to stay sick, this young man thought. And sure enough, while playing softball one day, the young man's uncle had a stroke and passed away. 
You know what the young man thought? The young man thought that his uncle must have really messed up in order not to be healed. Now, why does the young man believe that way? Why would such a thing occur? Because at some point along the way, you see, that young man was introduced to false teaching that sounded really good. It sounded like something that God would do. If someone is sick, surely God would heal them. That young man was introduced to false teaching along the way, and then he began espousing it in his own teaching. He started going down that trail himself. This morning, our text tells us, those that teach such a message, while they may get away with it in this life, will certainly not in the one to come. In fact, God will judge all who reject him and rescue all who receive him. As we look at the text, beginning in verse 4, I want us to see two absolutes there this morning. The first is this, God will judge the ungodly. Now remember, Peter writes, we saw this in the text last week, that there were some false prophets back in the day among the Israelites. And now there are also false teachers among you who are bringing those heresies into the church in secretive ways. They were, they were hiding, they were concealing the way that those teachings were being introduced so no one would recognize them immediately. One of those heresies that he's combating is the notion that Jesus Christ himself is not going to return. So however you want to as a Christian to live your life, you do it. Live however you want because Christ Jesus is not going to return again. So live it up. And still enjoy the grace of God. That was a false teaching that was going on in this very church. The teaching went like you're safe to live however you want. You're secure. And it's in direct contradiction to the scriptures. Listen, he says in verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So to explain this, Peter himself gives us three examples from the Old Testament. The first, in verse 4, he says, God, look there in the text with me, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, Peter doesn't give us too many context clues here. Uh, he, he doesn't tell us what these angels did or when this happened, the scenario that he's referring to, but it's likely that he's talking about Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, where some angels seem to have crossed over species lines and had sexual relations with women on earth. Now, it's an extremely strange story that's surrounded by lots of debate. But Peter's point here is to show that these angels gave into rebellion, they gave into sensuality, and God cast them into hell, and there they are being kept for judgment. They are awaiting a final judgment. Now, here's the argument. If sinful angels, if angels are being kept for judgment in this way, then certainly the crown of God's creation, mankind, who is made in the very image of God, 
the only creatures that have been given souls, the very ones that he sent his son to die for, to redeem. If he falls into sin, if he gives in to false teaching, he will certainly be judged. If angels are judged, certainly mankind will be also. The second example appears right after this in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. It's of Noah and the flood. Here in 2 Peter verse 5, Peter writes that he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, with the exception of Noah and his family, eight people, God wiped out all of humanity, all of the inhabitants of the earth because of their rampant wickedness and their rebellion towards him. And then the third example is of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6, Peter writes that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemning them to extinction. And he did this, the text says, as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He did it as an example. Peter says in verse 9, if the Lord has done all of this, then he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If God has done all of this, then certainly he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially, the text says, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and those that despise authority. And who in this text fits that bill? The false teachers. The false teachers in this very church. There there seem to be two ways, I want us to see this, that we could read this passage, although both cannot be right. The first is like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who was standing by himself. What did he pray? God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's one way of reading it. Where you read this, And we look at ourselves, you look at yourself and think, look what I've been able to keep myself from. Look at the false teaching that I've been able to stay away from. Look at the way that I've been able to keep myself doctrinally pure. Look at the way that I I know so much about the scriptures that I could personally stay away from these things. Look at what I've learned. See what knowledge and discernment I have. And the second one is one who looks at God while reading this passage. And we would say to ourselves, what mercy. What mercy. Look at what God has done in the sinner's heart. Look at what God has done in my own heart. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. And all of it. If there is any way that I've been able to keep from false teaching, if there is any way that I've been able to stay doctrinally pure, if there is any way that I've grown in the knowledge of Christ Jesus in his word, it's all of grace. And so as we complete this very passage this morning, I would ask of you, how do you read this passage Do you find yourself looking at it like the Pharisee who beats his chest thanking God that he is not like the others that have fallen into such sin? Or do we read it and say, 
It's all of grace if I would understand it in the way that the Spirit would have us, in the way that God intended it to be understood. Brothers and sisters, as we look here at the judgment of God, three things seem to be clear. The first is this, God is just. God is just, and this seems to be a given. But the evaluative question for the Christian and the non-Christian among us today would be this, do you trust him? Do you trust God with justice? This has to be one of the most difficult concepts to even remotely comprehend. So I, I won't try to do it justice this morning. But the question, the question before us is, do you trust him? Do you think that it is good and right that God punishes some for eternity? Do you think it's right? Do you think... God is just to do so. And perhaps you've heard that the seriousness of a crime is measured not only by its inherent nature, but also by the one who is offended. If God's word is true, which we believe that it is, a couple of weeks ago we looked at even Peter himself said that the Old Testament scriptures were true. And soon we'll see that he was saying that Paul's writings were true then God is the creator of the entire world and its universe. God himself is holy, and his holiness demands that offenders be punished. That judgment is enacted, and Christian, that very news should fill us with joy. Because you once stood in that same predicament, in a place that you were condemned without hope, without a future, without life, and yet God in his mercy has shown you tremendous grace. He revived your very dead heart. He regenerated you. He gave you faith so that you could call out to him. And upon doing so, justified you, applying Christ's very atoning work on your account. Once dead in sin, now alive in Christ. Once in judgment, now free. Did God's judgment, the question is, disappear for you? Did it disappear? Did God's judgment just go away? By no means. His own son, Jesus Christ, took on the punishment on himself on the cross that you deserve. And in mercy, he gave you his righteousness in exchange for your filthy rags. When you think of the judgment of God, when it brings you to question who he is and how he enacts it perfectly in this world, think about Christ. Think about Christ and sit and wonder. God is just. Second, God loves his church. God loves his church. Uh, we had some neighbors come over for dinner for the first time on Friday. And as I was telling my four-year-old who was coming over, I explained that they had a baby just like our baby in the home, Cyrus. And their baby was named Lincoln. And she quickly said, my four-year-old said, Lincoln is coming over? He's my best friend. Now, she's never met him. She's never heard of him. She said, I love Lincoln. We're quite quick to tell of our love for others, but God demonstrated it in this way. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
You may be quick to tell others that you love them, but God demonstrated it to us in offering his own son, Christ Jesus, while we were still in sin. God loves his church, and he showed us as he bought us, and he bought his church with a tremendous price. And we see it in God's judgment as well that he would not let those who infiltrate the church with a message contrary to Christ's gospel get away with it. You see, Jesus is coming back for his bride, and Jesus is coming back in judgment. God loves his church. And third, God is patient. God is patient. Let's be honest. We look at some of the situations that go on in this world, and we wonder with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? How long will you allow racism to continue in this world? How long will you allow my parents to suffer? How long will you allow pedophiles to go unnoticed? Questions like that get us wondering. Where is God? Why has he not come through yet? I was recently introduced to the song called Rise Up by Andrew Peterson. And one of the verses reads this. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not not his anger burn? Would not he repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Now we'll soon see in chapter 3 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we see the Old Testament accounts of judgment, when we see the false teachers in the church, and when we realize that they weren't obliterated immediately, what does that say about our God? We may not like nor understand God's patience for the wicked out there. But what about the patience that God has shown the wicked in here? What about the patience that he's shown you in your life? Are you thankful that he didn't, in his justice, obliterate you immediately? God is patient. God is patient. Two absolutes in the text. The first, God will judge the ungodly. And second, God will rescue the righteous. See, Peter knew his readers were growing weary of resisting the false teachers. The message of doing whatever you want and still remaining a Christian sounded so appealing. It sounded like freedom, but many knew this wasn't right. They just didn't know how much longer they could keep it up. Anyone resonate with the original audience here? Like, there are a lot of things this world seems to offer. And it all looks so good. Perhaps that life is just an easier life to live. It sure is appealing. Maybe I'll just go and dabble in it for a little while. The Christian life seems so difficult. We know it to be difficult, and it brings such little reward at times. Peter understood that thinking all too well. So he encourages us 
by the way of the original audience, by reminding them of God's sovereign help for the righteous in trying times. Today, we can have that very same confidence as believers. If God is preserving the ungodly for judgment, then surely he can rescue the righteous from trial. In verse 5, we saw God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved who? Noah and his family, who was a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In verse 6, when he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, he also rescued who? Lot, who was greatly distressed over the sensual conduct of the wicked. And then in verse 9, Peter completes his if-then statements. If God has done this, then surely the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This, I believe, is the very heart of this passage. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He said in chapter 1, verse 12, that he wanted to remind them of the qualities they should be growing in because they know them. They're established in the truth. So what's the news for you, brother and sister? That God knows exactly how to rescue you from trials. Don't miss the word choice here either, believer. It doesn't say that God always rescues immediately the believer when he faces any sort of trial, does it? No. 2 Peter 2.9 says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You see, you may not be getting out of your current trial anytime soon. Christian, because God tells us elsewhere in his word that trials are to be counted as joy, the book of James, that trials are good for us, that suffering ultimately produces hope, Romans chapter 5, that trials help us depend on God, that they are used to help us prepare us for his own purposes, Romans chapter 8, that they are used to help prove that our faith works, that God uses trials in our lives to show that he is faithful, that he's powerful. But take heart, disciple. The Lord certainly knows how to rescue you from them, and he will do it at the right time. He'll do it at the right time. Two questions. When will God rescue the righteous? Again, he'll do it at the right time. That is when the sovereign Lord who has planned all of time, when he decides to do it, he will. For Noah, the entire world was godless and it was in rebellion. God knew that it was time to start over. For Lot, his homeland was wicked. And even when Lot wasn't himself quick to leave, God pulled him out in the nick of time. When will God rescue the righteous? At the right time. Would you remember that? Would you hold that dear as you face trials, the book of James chapter 1 says, of many kinds, that God will rescue the godly at the right time? Second, how, do I, how should I respond to his rescue? 
Now, this is the question that you and I must grapple with this morning. Because if you've been a recipient of the grace of God, you know exactly what it's like to be rescued. You know what it's like to be dead in sin, to be walking far from God in rebellion, and then to be made alive in Christ, awakened to the beauty of God's kindness and love. And he didn't destroy you beforehand because of his tremendous patience. And he has rescued you many times because of the righteousness that his son Christ Jesus gave you in exchange for your sin. So how should you respond to his rescue? You should respond in utter obedience. Respond in obedience, Christian. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If God, the creator of your life, has preserved you until now, until this very day, is if he has given you every single thing that you have, and you, then shouldn't your life be lived with everything that you have? All that you know? Shouldn't that life that you've been given be lived in a way that brings him the, the most glory? You should respond with obedience. You should respond with humility. Because listen, God didn't save you because you are better than false teachers. Don't forget that. It's not that God looked down when he was doing his predestining and said, Chris Brown right there is a much better guy than the false teachers who are going to infiltrate my church. No, God saved you. God put his electing love upon you because of his great love for you, not anything that you have done or would do. No, God saved you because of his great love for you. What's the doctrine of unconditional election rightly applied? It's humility. It's nothing else. It's knowing that you didn't deserve anything and God gave you and lavished his kindness and his grace and his mercy upon you, a wicked sinner who was rebelling just as much as the false teachers that we see here in the text. If you apply this passage as the man who said, God, I thank you that I am not like those sinners, especially like that tax collector, then perhaps you would miss the story of that young man who believed his uncle had clearly made a life error that left him terminally ill. Because that young man was studying the book of John one day. And he was reading chapter 5 when he sees Jesus in a large crowd at the healing pool of Bethesda. And he sees that Jesus just heals one person. And he does so immediately. There was no pushing down on the floor. There was no music. There was no convulsing nothing. The guy just wanted to be healed. We aren't told about the very measure of his faith, whether he had associated with negative people or not. That didn't matter. 
Believer, hear this. All that mattered was that the sovereign God knew exactly how to rescue, and he did. The young man studying John chapter 5 began to weep. He was convicted of his sin. He knew that his teaching and the teachings of those that had influenced him was sinful and it was erroneous. He was sorrowful. How did he know? He knew this because God himself had intervened. God himself had rescued him because God himself is patient because he loves his church, because he knows how and he knows when and he knows who to rescue. That man, right in that moment, trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins by faith. Family, please watch out for false teachers. Call them on it when you hear erroneous teaching, when you see the character in which we looked at in the text last week. Call them on it. Don't miss it. But please, please pray that they would repent. Pray that God would grant them the ability just as he has given to you to understand his kindness and his mercy to all who would trust by faith in him. If God has rescued you, surely there are others. Surely all others aren't out of his reach. Whoever you are this morning, wherever you are this morning, you need to hear that God's judgment is sure, but it is not unavoidable. You need to hear that God's judgment is sure, but it is not unavoidable. You see, the Lord knows that we can't save ourselves. It's his doing. His word tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that everyone who would call on his name will be saved. You need to hear that God has been extremely patient with you. And today, if you have never trusted in Christ Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of your sins, you should do that before his patience runs out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us time in your word. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you're slow to anger, you're rich in mercy, you're abounding in love. We thank you for those of us in here this morning that you have rescued. God, help us to be a grateful people. Help us to be your people that would respond in quick obedience to the way that you would have us to live, to the way that you would have us protect your church. God, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would make us a humble people, a people who would not look at others that are in sin in this world and think, I thank you, God, that I am not like them, but that we would rather grow in humility, that we would understand that we once were such as that individual. 
that we were once running in rebellion from you when you saved us, when you caught us off guard, when you caught us in the middle of our sin and you changed our dead hearts and you gave us life. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a gift. Father, I pray for the individuals who are watching, for the individuals who are here this morning that would find themselves still dead in their sins, unacquainted with the grace and kindness that you've shown so many of us. I pray that you would help them to see that you are patient, that you have not yet obliterated them, that you had not judged them in the middle of their sin. God, I pray that they might, by the power of your spirit, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would trust in you today, that they would understand the work that Christ Jesus himself has provided for us on the cross, taking our filthy rags, taking our sin and giving us his very righteousness. Father, grow us into a people who would love, who love your word, who have a desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, who have a desire to humbly submit to everything you say, and that we would be a people who would call out anything otherwise, and that we would be a family that would pray for others to come into the fold. 